here would pour our love on Jesus. We've romanced our wives and our girlfriends. We've poured our loves out on a lot of things. But I wonder what God would do if we poured our love out on him. Just willingly, sacrificially, like the woman with the precious perfume, just said, Lord, there's nothing off limits with you as long as I can express my love to you. I want to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And this morning and tonight, we're going to be looking at a spiritual checklist for serious believers. As I began to look at this passage and study it, I began to realize that there was much more here than I could do in a month, much less in one sermon. And so uh, we'll start this morning, get as far as we can, that we'll go uh, tonight and finish up tonight. And really tonight is the heart of this message uh, because tonight is so crucial to how a church is supposed to operate and how believers are supposed to operate. So in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer has been building up toward the end. He's been giving us exhortations and admonishments. He's about to move into now practical applications for how the Word is supposed to be lived out. And in verse 14, he says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral person or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. Now what he's just saying there is simply that when Esau realized what he had done, he went back to his father and wanted his father to change his mind, but his father was a man of integrity. The decision had been made, the choice had been made. There was no chance for his father to change his mind. Esau made his choice. He had to live with his choices. The word says don't let immoral or godless people be found among you because when you make the choice to become an immoral person, you live with those choices for the rest of your life. Now, if you remember, the writer began this chapter by talking about a race, that all of us are in a race and that all of us are in that race as citizens of heaven. And because we're in a race as citizens of heaven, we have a great cloud of witnesses, which he refers to in chapter 11, that are watching us and urging us on and reminding us that whatever we're going through, we can make it that God will give us the grace to endure. And over and over in chapter 12, you will see words like patience and endurance. In fact, in verses 1 through 5, the, the key word in verses 1 through 5 is the word endurance. The key word in verses 5 through 13 is the word discipline. And if I'm going to make it in this life, I have to learn that word endurance and the only way I can learn to endure is to have discipline, much like a runner in a race. The Christian life is not a hundred-yard dash. The Christian life is a marathon. We are running in a race. And sometimes endurance implies that we are suffering and hurting and that there are things going on in our lives that are painful and stressful. Now, there are three major passages or books or sections in the Scripture that define for us how we should look at suffering. The first one is obviously the book of Job. When you look at the book of Job, you get a perspective on suffering. And what you find in the book of Job is that God has a purpose. If you and I are going through suffering, if we're going through setbacks and through sorrows, God has a purpose in that suffering. The second major passage that deals with suffering and, and obstacles is Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, you learn that we, it is easy for us to look at the world and say, you know, they seem to be getting away with murder. But God takes the psalmist into the inner sanctuary and shows him the end of the world 
and, and the, of the people of the world. And so what we learn in Psalm 73 is the presence of God is with us in suffering. Not only the person of God and his purpose, but his presence is with us. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told to embrace this discipline and embrace this suffering. Why? So that we can become partakers of God's holiness. And so in those three passages, you find the purpose of God, you find the presence of God, and you find that you become a partaker with God in the things that you're going through. So the first thing I want us to look at this morning is how you handle suffering will determine the extent to which God can work in your life. Now go back up to verse 4 if you would. How you handle suffering or setbacks or sorrows or painful circumstances will determine the extent to which God can work in your life. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Now in verse 6, I want you to circle the word chasten or discipline, whichever translation your translation might use and then go down to verse 10 of chapter 12 where it says he disciplines us for our own good same word now if you want to write out in the margin somewhere first timothy chapter 1 and verse 20 translates this word may be taught in other words it is a discipline or a correction with words God sometimes disciplines us and corrects us with words. Sometimes the words of a Sunday school teacher, sometimes the words of a sermon, sometimes the words of some message that you hear on television. God, through his written word, is trying to discipline us by speaking to us. Sometimes that works. Those of you that are parents understand that there are times when you can just say to your child, you don't need to do this because, and that's all you need to do. And you are disciplining them as a parent by words. There are times when God teaches us and disciplines us. It's the same word. It means to admonish or reprove. It's also used in 2 Timothy 2.25, and there it is translated correcting, that God sometimes not only disciplines us, but he gives us a course correction. He's correcting us. In Titus 2.12, it's translated instructing, instructing. God can admonish us, teach us, reprove us, correct us, or instruct us as he does a child. It's all the same word in those passages. What it means is that God is trying to educate us about how life is supposed to be and how we are to view life as it happens to us and that our heart and our mind need to be in tune with one another about what God is trying to do with us. Now, sometimes this word can be translated into discipline with calamity. That God can send a calamity in your life or allow a calamity in your life because he knows that you will not be instructed with words, that you will not listen to correction, that you will not be taught. And so the only way he can get your attention is to get you on your back and to get you on your knees through a calamity. How many of you understand what I'm talking about, that there are times when God knows how to get your attention with a situation? I mean, and you, you sit there and think, man, if I'd only listened. You know, my parents got a lot smarter when I went off to college. They were dumb as dirt when I was in high school. But when, when I went off and when I started having kids, my parents became incredibly smarter. I don't know what happened to them. They just got smarter as I got older. And how many times I wish I had listened to that instruction, but I didn't want to listen to it. I wanted to do it my way. And so consequently, God had to send something that they were trying to protect me from. God had to send something into my life to get my attention for me to cry out to him and say, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? One of the things that happens to us if we're not involved in Bible study on a continual basis, if we're not in the Word on our own, if we're not in a small group, one of the things that happens, we never learn how to accurately interpret our circumstances and our suffering. 
And before you know it, we begin to blame God. Now, these first century believers, they were kind of falling for the prosperity gospel. You know, we, we love God. We're committed to God. We've come out of this Jewish religion, and now we're, we're converted Jews. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and, and we're, why is all this stuff happening to us? I mean, we thought when we came to Christ, things were going to be easy. You see, they were missing the point of what God was trying to do because they would not listen to the scriptures they were having to learn through circumstances. And God sometimes has to use circumstances to get our attention. Now, notice verse 9. This is what God wants to do. You'll see two things that he wants to do in verse 9 and verse 11. When you're going through suffering, when you're going through a difficult time, God wants to teach you, first of all, to have a submissive will. That's found in verse 9. Then he wants to teach you to have a disciplined mind, verse 11. Don't start speculating. Don't start arguing with God. Don't start doing some stuff that you are going to regret later. He wants you to have a disciplined mind to see what you're going through from his perspective. Now, look at verse 10 at the fruit of the heart that is right with God in times of tough circumstances. First of all, he says there's holy character in verse 10. Then he says you have a peaceful mind, you'll have a fruitful life, and you'll have righteous conduct. All of those, the fruit of having a right heart toward the circumstances that you're going through. The problem is we want holy character and a peaceful mind and a fruitful life without going through the process. But you see, there has to be pruning in our lives because the results of a godly life are the result of going through the process of his discipline, either verbal through words, through the written word, or through circumstances. God pruning away in our lives those things that are not consistent with the nature of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something. Pruning hurts. It hurts. But it helps us to bear more fruit. Someone has said, and you've probably heard it before, God had one son without sin, but he never had a son without suffering. Jesus Christ understands suffering. He went through suffering to pay the price for your sins and for my sins. And how we handle our circumstances, how we handle life, how we handle our setbacks tells the world a lot about what we believe about God and if we really believe it or if it's just religious lingo. If we're really sold on what God has said to us, how you handle suffering will determine how you finish your race. You see, sometimes when suffering comes, sometimes when setbacks come, sometimes when circumstances pile up on us, we, some of us quit. We just quit. Some of us get bad at God. Some of us blame other people. But the person who finishes well is the person who learns to see God in the midst of the circumstances and the sufferings. Lord, I'm piled up with this stuff. It's over my head, but I can still see you in the middle of it. Now go back to verse 1. Here's what he's telling us to do. He tells us in verse 1 to run. How are we supposed to run? With endurance. Not casually, not flippantly, not occasionally. We're to run with endurance. In verse 2, he tells us we're to fix. Fix what? Fix our eyes on who? Oh, not on our circumstances. How many times have you sat in a small group or how many times have you been talking to Christians and their eyes are so set and locked on their circumstances they can't see Jesus in the middle of it? He does not say fix your eyes on your circumstances, on the persecution that you're going through, on the problems that you're having. He says get your eyes off of that and look up and see Jesus. Third thing he says is to focus in verse 3, to focus on the right things. It is so hard for us to focus on the right things. I tell you, talk television and talk radio makes us focus on all the wrong things. If I see one more, my mama left me when I was a child, and that's the reason I was the way I am, I'm going to get sick. I don't know where they find these people that end up on these shows, but I want to tell you something. Somebody needs to get on the show and 
whoever it is, and say, look, let me tell you something. Your life is going to be in the pits, and it's never going to work out, and you're always going to have these problems, and it's always going to be bad, and it's always going to be hopeless until you realize that there's one who gives you hope beyond your circumstances. And Oprah's not going to solve your problems, and Jerry Springer, for God's sake, is not going to solve your problems. They're not going to solve your problems. Dr. Dyer's not going to solve your Everybody's talking about this psychologist is making about $300 million off of us watching him. He, you know what he's doing? You know what that guy's doing? He's as lost as a goose, but you know what he's doing? He's saying to people, hey, get a life. This is the way life is. Everybody's got problems. All God's children's got problems. Learn to deal with it. How do we learn to deal with it? Not by looking at our problems and trying to analyze them to death. We deal with it by looking unto Jesus. Lord, I can't handle this, but you can. How are you doing in handling your suffering today? Is that your focus? I'm not saying ignore it. I'm not saying have denial. I'm not saying pretend it's not there. All of us have problems and all of us have needs and all of us have hurts. That's why we prayed about it earlier in this service. But I'm saying get beyond it until you can get to the point where on your knees, looking up to God, you can say, God, I don't know if I'm going to make it, but I know that you can see me through it. And day by day, minute by minute, I'm going to trust you with this. One step at a time. Now, the second thing is how you handle relationships will determine to what extent God can work in your life. You know... I used to say to people, ministry would be great if you didn't have to deal with people. You know, you're, some of you who are salesmen, you know, my job would be great if I didn't have to deal with people. You know, those of you that are in retail business, your job would be great if you didn't have to deal with people. But, you know, the problem is we've got to deal with people because that's who we are, and that's what we are. Now look at verse 14. He tells us about three relationships that we have to deal with. And how we deal with these relationships determines to what extent God can do a work in our lives. Verse, tw verse 14, pursue sanctification. That's our relationship with God. How you deal with your relationship with God determines to what extent God can do a work in your life because he's not going to go where he's not wanted. So he says pursue sanctification, pursue peace, with all men. That's our relationship to the world. That's our relationship to the world. Now, I've got to admit, because of my nature, which I need to get rid of sometimes, because of my nature, you know, I, 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 I want to fight the world sometimes. But Jesus loved the world. And it's easy for us to cuss and discuss the world and all their problems and what they're doing. You know what? That's all they know. They don't know any better. We do. And I'm to pursue peace with all men. That's an inclusive word. That means with people I don't want to pursue peace with. And you know what pursuing peace is? Pursuing peace is not seeing them at the other end of the hallway and going the other direction so you won't have an argument. Pursuing peace is not I'll avoid eye contact with them. Pursuing peace is I just won't talk to them and they won't talk to me and we'll just be at peace with one another. That's not peace, that's suppression. That doesn't bring the presence of God. Pursuing peace with all men is that guy who acts like a jerk, guess what? He's lost, he's depraved, he doesn't know Christ, he's going to act like a jerk. Now if we act like a jerk back to him, how do we have a witness with him? You know, I've been nice to waiters that have spilled stuff on me. Because somebody told me one time, you never know who's watching. There have been times when I didn't want to be nice to lost people who were acting ugly. But if you're going to pursue peace with all men, it means you've got to do some things differently. Then he says... See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That's our relationship with other Christians. So it's our relationship with God, pursue sanctification, pursue peace with all men. That's our relationship with the world. And see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That's our relationship with other Christians. And how we're getting along with God is revealed in how we're getting along with others. 
And how we're getting along with others tells people how we're getting along with God. So let me ask you two questions. Am I an encourager of others in their walk with God? Am I encouraging others in their walk with God? Look at verse 12. Am I encouraging other people in their walk with God? Do people see you as an encourager? Now, I have to admit, I'm sometimes not a good encourager because, you know, for me, I don't need a lot. I don't need a lot of pat on the back. You know, I just I know what I'm supposed to do and I do it. And so sometimes I think that's a sign of weakness that people need encouragement, but the Scripture says we're supposed to do that, so that's my problem, not yours. Notice what he says in verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for the feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. We're in a race, but in reality, we're in a relay race. And if the people that I'm running the race with, if they falter and if they stumble and if they fall and if they don't pass off the baton, then we don't win the race. And so I'm to be an encourager of these people. Isaiah uses this image in Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4. Uh, It's used in Job chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The word strengthen comes from our word that we translate orthopedic. It means to straighten out, to set in the right place. That you and I are called by God to straighten out or to make upright those who are weak. And you may say, well, you know, I get get tired of encouraging people. Hey, that's our job. To strengthen. And not just for ministers, it's for all of us to strengthen. But I want to ask you something. Who do you allow in your life to do that for you? Because you see, part of being a a part of the body of Christ and of being a part of the church is that you allow people to come into your life that can speak the truth to you in love because they care about you, because they love you, because they see in a blind spot. Who is it that you allow? I'm not talking about being an open target for everybody in the world, but there need to be people that you give permission to and say to them, when you see something in my life that's not consistent, that is lacking, please talk to me about it. Please share it with me. Strengthen. Make straight. Now, Let's go back to chapter 3, and I want to trace through this (coughs) mutual accountability with you, if I could. Chapter 3 and verse 13. You'll see a lot of let us and a lot of one another's. In fact, a good study is to study the one another's of Scripture because there are a lot of one another's. Christian life is not lived in isolation, and there are a lot of one another's here for us. And, And notice that he says in verse 13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore let us fear, if while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Chapter 4 and verse 11. Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall. Chapter 6 and verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Chapter 10 and verse 23. Bishop Westcott calls chapter 10 and verse 23 the duty of mutual help. The duty of mutual help. 10 and verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful... And let us consider how to stimulate. Let us think of ways on how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Am I encouraging others to walk with God? Second question, am I a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Am I a peacemaker or a troublemaker. Now, how many of you have ever been in a church that was full of troublemakers? Just raise your hand. How many of you have ever been in that kind of... How many of you have ever been in a church that's had a fight? 
Not fun, is it? In fact, it's the exact opposite of what God said the church is supposed to be. And so the question we have to always ask ourselves is, am I pursuing peace? Am I a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Wearsby talks about the fact that there are, in most churches, sanctified obstructionists. People who are determined that there will never be a unanimous vote on anything. They're just always against something. I, I spent a good bit of time with a pastor in Mississippi uh, when I was at the Cove two weeks ago, and he began to pour his heart out to us, and he began to talk to us. In fact, they, they had talked to the Wearsbys, and the Wearsbys introduced us to them, and we began to, to develop a relationship with them, and Terry spent some time with his wife, and I want to tell you something. That pastor is getting the stew beat out of him. He said, every day I'm fighting for my life. And he said, I've had it. He said, the last sermon I preached, I preached 15 minutes and thought I was going to die to get through that. He said, I'm out of gas. I'm exhausted. I'm burnt out. I just don't even care anymore. And so Terry was telling his wife about some men that I meet with and pray with every week. Every Wednesday I meet and spend some time with three men in our church. If I'm in town on Wednesdays, I'm having breakfast and meeting and sharing my heart with three men in this church. I've been doing it for years. And they know me, warts and all. They know the stuff that frustrates me. They listen to stuff, and then they tell me, now, you tell us that, but don't tell the church that. I mean, they let me be honest. And I want you to hear what this pastor's wife said. This is the First Baptist Church in a major town in Mississippi. She said, I can't think of three men in our church that my husband could share his heart with and not be stabbed in the back. That's just like Jesus, isn't it? How sad that something calls itself a church and has people in it that think their duty is to cause problems rather than to support and to love. Romans 12 and verse 18 says, We are to live peaceably with all men as far as it is possible for us to do it. We are to pursue peace. It means to hunt or to follow after peace. We're to pursue it. We're to have a dogged determination for peace. It is in the present active imperative. It means this is not optional for us as believers. It's not, well, I'll pursue peace until they do something I don't like. He says, pursue peace with all men. Fight for peace. You show me a church that's not fighting for peace and unity, and I'll show you a church where the devil's got a stronghold. I'll show you a place where the enemy can go to work. And he says we're to pursue it with all men. Now, the Old Testament word is shalom. You're familiar with shalom. It means completeness or wholeness. What are we supposed to pursue? Completeness or wholeness or soundness or well-being. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 18, this word peace is used of someone who prays for the welfare of another person. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. In uh, Judges chapter 19 and verse 20, he says, let me take care of all your needs. The psalmist uses this word peace for those who seek the good of a city or a country. We have a lot of people in Albany and in Lee County who are seeking the bad for this city and country. We need to pursue peace. We, we need to speak up, but we need to speak up in love and pursue peace. I've already written letters, and I wrote them a month ago to every commissioner and to our mayor about what I think about the need for selling alcohol on Sunday. This is a no-brainer decision. You know, I've already done too many funerals that are related to alcohol in this church for anybody to ever convince me adding another 24 hours of drinking is going to help this community. But I didn't act like a jerk. I just wrote a letter and said, here, this is what I believe. This is where I stand. And if you care about what happens in this community, you ought to flood your commissioners and your mayor with letters in a positive way to say this is where we are. Don't threaten to vote them out of office. You can do that anyway. Just speak the truth in love. But pursue peace. Pray for the welfare of the city. 
pray for the welfare of the country. Now, in the New Testament, it's over and over. God is the God of peace. Jesus is the Prince of peace. Jesus gives peace to others. Luke 7 and verse 50, go in peace. The disciples were messengers of peace in Luke chapter 10. The Scripture says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I wonder what troublemakers will be called the sons of. The devil. Because if a peacemaker is a son of God, then a troublemaker is the son of the devil. And there are a lot of the devil's children in churches in America today doing everything they can to disrupt the peace. Vance Havner says the devil doesn't fight churches anymore. He joins them. There's a lot of truth to that. He says we are to pursue peace. Peace is the fruit of the Spirit. It's linked to grace. In Romans 1, 7, it's tied to the spiritual life. In Romans 8, 6, the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is more than the absence of hostility. To pursue peace is to promote harmony and unity within the body of Christ. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, seek peace and pursue it. Now turn to Ephesians. Turn to the book of Ephesians. We're closer to being done than you think if you listen quick. If I can stop anywhere, we'll just pick up tonight. Ephesians 2 and verse 14. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he himself is our peace. That means... I don't have to work it up. I don't have to grit my teeth and say, you know, I'm going to get along with people if it kills me. No, he's our peace. It just has to come out of me what's inside of me, and what's inside of me is the Holy Spirit of God, and he himself is our peace. I don't have to work this up. It's already there. I just have to let it out. He himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, if there's something you want to pray for Albany, that's a good verse to pray for Albany, to break down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments which contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. He's our peace. Our man-made barriers have come down. We're a family. doesn't matter what background you have. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It means that we are a family. Now, somebody's going to say, well, that's not the way I was raised. Well, you need to have a second birth because a second birth changes your raising. If you were raised to believe wrong, you need to start believing what the Word of God says. And God says, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, male or female. That all are one in Christ. And if you're not willing to pursue peace with another person because they look different than you or act different than you or seem to have a different background than you and it doesn't fit what a psychologist or somebody on television told you is the group you're supposed to hang around with, then you need to have a new birth and allow God to change you to see other people the way God sees them. And you know how God sees them? He sees them as sinners in need of a Savior, just like he saw you. He sees them the same way he saw you. He loves them the same way he loves you. He didn't love you any more than he loves them. He didn't spill any more blood for you than he did for them. And when Jesus came and Ephesians says, he broke down these barriers. He broke down these walls. And one of the things that hinders revival in this community today is we have too many man-made and too many religious walls that people have put up out of fear 
or out of predisposition or out of ideas or out of prejudice that we need to go to the cross and die to ourselves and die to our opinions and die to our junk and say, God, I want to pursue peace with all men. Now, if God doesn't bring revival to this community, it will be because the church decided to keep its walls up instead of letting them down. Somebody might say, well, we might lose control. Yeah, bless God. He did a whole lot better in six days of creating the world and keeping control instead of chaos than we've done in our lifetimes in bringing any control and order to this world. All of our fixes and all of our solutions and all of our government money, look at where it's gotten us. We're in worse shape than we've ever been. All the things that we think we know what's best, we find out it doesn't work. Maybe we ought to start doing what God says and take him at his word. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Not just eliminating dissension, not just eliminating discord, not just eliminating friction, but to promote harmony. Romans 14, 19, Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God's a God of peace. How many of you have discovered that the older you get, there's less worth fighting for or fighting about? You know, when we're young, you know, we got that bully instinct in us. You know, we just, you know, pick a fight with anybody. You know, last man standing wins. But as you get older, grayer, or it falls out, or whatever it does, you begin to realize that there's some battles just not worth fighting. Vance Havner said a bulldog can whip a skunk, but it's not worth it. And this is not primarily for this congregation. This is for those who will watch later on television. Because God has blessed this church with a remarkable sense of peace. As much as any place I've ever seen. But you know why? It's because we have some men and women in this church that pray and pursue it. It just doesn't happen. It's not something that comes about by osmosis. It's not something that just casually floats through a church. You have to work at it. You have to work at peace. You have to work at unity. When you see something that can take away the peace and take away the unity, it has to be dealt with, and it has to be dealt with firmly, but it has to be dealt with because you love and you care for the unity of the church. And I would say to people, if you're in a church and they're fighting and fussing, you need to either pray for revival or you need to get out because you've only got one life. And where you raise your kids and what they see about the church will make a difference in how they pursue God. When we were in Oklahoma, it was a great school system. It was a great public school system. In fact, we figured out that our daughters would have had believers in every classroom. In Oklahoma in the 80s, they were still praying at football games at a public school. I mean, they announced our after-game fellowships at the football games. You can go to First Baptist Church and you can go to a fellowship. And it, I mean, they announced, I mean, you talk about a wide-open community. The ACOU hadn't found that little community yet. I mean, we had a wide-open community. I mean, you could talk about the Lord anywhere on any campus. I mean, you had total access. It, it was, it was a, an ideal school environment. But the church was hell on earth. It was a deacon-possessed church. We had 78 deacons, most of whom we couldn't find. My last Sunday there, we had about 30 in church on Easter Sunday. 30 out of 78 made it to church. They would show up any time there was a vote because they wanted to make sure the church was taken care of. What they wanted to make sure was their agenda was taken care of. When I left that church, they ran 950. Today, they run 525. When we began to pray about coming to Sherwood, 
we made a decision. We didn't know anything about the schools. We didn't know anything about Sherwood Christian Academy. And really that didn't matter because our decision was this. As a pastor and a wife with the responsibility of raising two daughters, we knew it was more important that they have a healthy church experience than a healthy school experience. You can survive a lousy school experience. You cannot survive a lousy church experience. I've watched too many kids grow up and hate God and hate the church and hate ministry and hate everything else because of the way they see people act in churches. And we decided then, God, if we get a choice, we're going to go where there's a healthy church environment, where our kids can see a healthy church, not a dysfunctional church, operate. If you're here today, or if you're watching by television, and you're in a dysfunctional church and an unhealthy church, I'm going to tell you something. You probably can't change it. Like Adrian Rogers said about somebody, somebody said, well, I don't want to leave my church. You know, Grandma's buried out back. He said, man, if Grandma knew what was going on in your church, she'd already left. You can fight, you can fuss, and you can stand there and argue, or you can write Ichabod over it and say, the glory has departed. But I know this, if for no other reason, for the sake of my children and for the sake of my sanity, I wouldn't stay in a church that was fighting and fussing. I'd go somewhere where the peace of God rules the hearts of the people and where there's unity. I'm not talking about a perfect church. This is not a perfect church. We got people in this church that wouldn't be happy if Jesus Christ was their pastor and the Holy Spirit went to the hospital to see them every day. I'm not talking about perfect, but I'm talking about at the very core and being of this church, there's a heart for unity and there's a heart for peace and there's a heart for relationships with one another. And that is very unusual in a large church. But it, this is one of those unusual churches where God has given us a large number with a small mentality where we can still care about each other. And so I want to ask you today, how are you handling your suffering? And what are you doing about pursuing peace with other people in this body and with this community? Would you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed, please? Mark's going to sing a song of invitation. And as he does, I want to ask you a question. Are you doing your part? Let us, it says, not let the staff not let the deacons, not let my Sunday school teachers, let us from the front row to the back row, from the youngest to the oldest. What are you doing to pursue peace and righteousness and sanctification? Let us do it. Let us find ways to stimulate one another and encourage one another to good works and to good deeds. What are you doing to help other people? to minister to other people, to go across the aisle and to go to the next chair and to walk across the room and to say, hey, let me pray for you. Let me love you. Let me help you. Let us do it. All of us do it. Church family, people are dying to be in a church like that. And we need to be that church. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you may hear a lot of things about the church, but don't judge Jesus by what you've heard in some bad churches. Judge Jesus by the Word of God. Jesus will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never disappoint you. You may be disappointed in a preacher. You may be disappointed in a church, but I promise you, you'll never be disappointed in Him. Come to Christ today. Allow Christ to save you, to change your life today. That voice inside of you that is speaking to you, that's the voice of the Holy Spirit calling you unto himself. Some of us need to come today and just kneel at the altar and pray for people that are out of fellowship with God. But as Mark sings, I'm going to ask you to come to make a public decision 
what you need to do with Christ, what you need to do as far as church membership, what you need to do as far as your relationship with one another. Maybe you need to go across this room somewhere and find somebody that you're out of fellowship with and say, let's get this right today. Do it now. As Mark sings, you come right now. I'll let God be God. Let God be just decide today to let God be God. You know, He can handle a lot of things you're worried about if you just let Him be God. He's bigger than you. He's wiser than you. He's more powerful than you. So don't wrestle control from him and try to handle it yourself. You may be standing there saying, you know, there are just some people I can't love. There are some people I can't love either, but I know this, Christ can love them through me and Christ can give me a love for them that I wouldn't have on my own. And tonight we're going to finish this up. And I think tonight we're going to deal with what I believe to be the biggest hindrance to revival in the church today. And it's found in our text in Hebrews chapter 12. But I think if we got this right, we would have revival and we would have it in an instant if it were right. D.L. Moody said it's the biggest sin of the church. So I want us to come back tonight and look and see what God has to say to us because he has more that he wants to say to us out of this passage. Let me ask you to be seated, if you would, please, and our men to get ready to take the offering. I want to lead us in prayer as we take our offering this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we bless your name. that We don't have to grit our teeth and work it up but that you empower us to live the life that you've called us to live. And so, Father, we come before you today asking that the name and the reputation of this church would always be they pursue peace and unity. It's a church where the Spirit of God has freedom to work. And so, Father, as we give this morning, I pray that we have first given ourselves, poured out our love on you, that 
you've opened the eyes of our hearts so that we might see Jesus this morning high and lifted up and that our giving would be an act of worship and praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As our men receive the morning offering, guests, let me remind you that Sherwood's story will be in here in just a few minutes after the service is over. We'll give you time uh, to go to the restroom and to take a, a break, and then we have folks that can get your children to the children's ministry area. Provide, we'll provide for them with children's Sunday school to the student area. We'll provide for your students uh, with Sunday school time. And so we just ask that you uh, just give us the opportunity to do that. Many of you we've talked to, we've written, or we've uh, prayed with, or been in your homes, and, and we encourage you to come. We'll meet right down in this section right here. A few minutes after the crowd clears out, we'll get started. And please give us the opportunity to share with you what God is doing in this place and how he's working in this church. I have a request of our church family. Some of you may be guests and you think every time I go to a church they ask for money. Uh, God has been incredibly good to us this year. Incredibly good to us. Uh, all our bills are being paid on time and in a timely manner. Uh, we have a positive cash flow for the first time in probably four or five years in the life of this church. And you have been good to give this year and I applaud you for it probably. By the fall, we will have met our pledges for future generations. We still owe a substantial amount of money on this facility. We don't need to forget that. Right now, interest rates are below 6%. That means right now, the more we give, the more we pay down our principal, and the greater our freedom is to do ministry and not to be stuck with debt. We don't want to be stuck with long-term debt. Our goal is to be out of debt by the end of this decade. To do that, we have to give and give sacrificially. So I'm asking you to simply pray. To pray about what God would have you to do. Right now, every dollar extra that you give helps us to not just pay interest and a little principal, but interest and a lot of principal. So if there's something that you can do, something significant that you can do, something sacrificial that you can do, now's the time to do it because... If interest rates were to creep back up, that just eats into our giving more. And we want to give as much as we can and pay down as much debt as we can uh, this year while God's being good to us. The economy's slowing down, but I want to tell you, a, a 5.75 interest rate on our loan is a blessing from God. And good and evil run on parallel tracks, and they normally arrive about the same time. And uh, God's been good to us to give us this break and this window of opportunity us to give. So let me ask you to give generously, to pray about it, to pray with your family about it, what you can do, to talk to a financial advisor about it, to talk to Tom, Ball Tom Pollock about it, who's our stewardship pastor. If you'd like some help from him, he'll be glad to help you with that. How many of you would rather be here than stuck in traffic on 285 in Atlanta? All right. Well, we'll see you back tonight at 6 o'clock. May God bless you and give you a great afternoon.